Loving Heavenly Father, we pray now that the preaching of your word would illuminate Jesus Christ as the great treasure of our hearts and uh, point us clearly to his salvation through which this treasure is ours forever and evermore. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please take a seat. I hope that you kids at this point in your life are very used to the question, do you believe in Jesus? You've probably heard that question a lot. That's a good thing. You've heard it from your parents. You've heard it at church. But there's actually another question that we need to ask if we really want to understand that question. So kids, when you get asked the question, what do you believe in Jesus, you probably also need to know the answer to the question, what do you believe about Jesus? What if you asked me if I believed in Jesus and I said, yes, I believe in Jesus, that he will give me a lifetime supply of chocolate? Well, I did just say I believed in Jesus, didn't I? Or what if I say, yes, I believe in Jesus, that he will give me superpowers, or that he will give me a flying horse. That's actually what I used to pray for when I was little. That's a really cool idea, but that's not what we're supposed to believe in Jesus for, is it? Jesus could do those things. We're not asking what Jesus can do. We're asking, what did Jesus say he came to do? When I ask you if you believe in Jesus, what does Jesus want you to believe about himself? Now, there are other things which are less cool than a lifetime supply of chocolate or a flying horse that you might want to believe in Jesus for. Maybe those are even good things. I believe that Jesus will never let me get sick. I believe that Jesus will make sure everyone always likes me. I believe that Jesus will make sure only good things happen to me. Those aren't what Jesus promised either. Again, those are things he can do. Sometimes he does things very much like that. But we need to know when we say, I have faith in Jesus, what we have faith about. We know what Jesus wants us to trust him for. So can you tell me what you believe about Jesus? That is a big reason why Mark is writing this book for us. So we can know, what does Jesus want you to believe about him? We have seen Jesus do some amazing things over the last few weeks. We've seen him calm a storm like it was nothing at all. We have seen him calm a man filled with an army of demons, like it was nothing at all. He did it just by speaking. Now today, we are going to hear that Jesus even has power over life and death. And all of those miracles are meant to show those people then, and they are meant to show you now, kids, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, what it means for you to believe in Jesus. Jesus wants you to see not just what he really came to do, but he wants you to see that what Jesus promises to do 
is so much bigger and better than anything that I could have told Jesus to do for me. He is the Savior. He is the King. He is God who became man and lived a perfect life to die in our place so that death can be beaten for us. So that if we trust in Jesus, if we believe in that, we live in his kingdom forever. Let's see how Jesus shows that in our true story from Mark today. That's Mark chapter 5. We're going to read verses 21 to 43. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. There came one of the rulers of the synagogues, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put all of them outside. And took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Our story today is two stories. Jesus going to help Jairus' daughter gets interrupted by another story where a woman comes and touches Jesus' clothes. One of the things that Mark is showing us if we zoom out on his book is how busy Jesus is. Always from one place to the next. Jesus does not hate rest. Jesus loves going off alone to pray, but he is always being interrupted by people who need him. 
And Mark is showing us how loving Jesus is and how compassionate Jesus is, that even after he has been so busy, we never hear Jesus say, I am too tired. I just need some time for myself. Jesus is a good shepherd. He loves his sheep so much that he is constantly pouring out his energy to care for their needs. This is the same heart of a good shepherd that Jesus shows all the way to the cross. It is the same heart that Jesus has even now. Now that he is even in a body that does not tire or sleep, how much more confident can we be that Jesus is always ready to respond to our needs with a compassionate heart? The same love that never says, I need time for myself or I am busy when we come to him with our suffering and our pain. So that is one of the things that we can see in this very busy episode. And we will see how that plays out through this story, the wonderful compassion of Jesus. But there are a couple of ways that these two events are connected beyond just happening at the same time. Mark tells us the sick girl was 12 years old and the woman had been sick for 12 years. Now we want to be careful not to make too much of numbers in the Bible. We can wind up trying to prove the Bible true in ways that the Bible isn't interested in looking for codes and signs. But Mark does use this number to draw the two stories together, to make us think of them going together. And in both cases, the number 12 is meant to remind us of the urgency with which these people came to Jesus looking for help. The woman in the crowd had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And that discharge would have made her ceremonially unclean, unable to go and worship God in the temple. Twelve sick years where she could not worship with God's people. You can see why, beyond just how she would have felt, how desperately she would have looked for any way to be healed. Mark notes that just like the demon-possessed man in the last story, we are meant to recognize that no one was able to help. No one was able to help this woman. If Jesus is able to do anything, it is going to have to be beyond what any person was capable of. Likewise, this dying girl was 12 years old. Now, death will always feel unnatural. It will always feel wrong. Loss will always leave us wondering whether or not what is broken can be restored. But we do feel that in a particular way with the death of children, don't we? When parents lose their children, that is when we are most reminded of how broken the world is, how unnatural the curse is. So we can totally understand the urgency that Jairus felt when he came to Jesus hoping that his daughter could be saved. So we see these two desperate people, Jairus and the sick woman. Jairus is a synagogue ruler. He is a respected man. He was maybe a Pharisee, the type of man who could have walked through the community with pride, looked up to by the people around him, and yet he unceremoniously throws himself at the feet of Jesus, who we already know was a controversial figure among the religious types, and begs Jesus if he can help him. 
This woman whose uncleanness would have made it so frightening for her to go into crowds because to touch someone who is unclean makes you unclean yourself. She braves the crowds. She sneaks through. She goes right up to Jesus. You can see what a big deal this is for her because she tries to sneak in and touch Jesus and then sneak away again. You can see how frightened she is when Jesus calls her forward. So in both cases, we can see that coming to Jesus took courage. A courage that shows a real, true faith and trust. This isn't a sort of throwaway request. Well, I guess I'll I'll come if you're able to do something. If these two people had not really believed, it's quite likely they wouldn't have come to Jesus at all. Now, Jesus recognizes that they have faith in him. But... What do Jairus and this woman believe about Jesus? It's our first point, faith in Jesus, the healer. At this point in Jesus' ministry, we see that he is being followed by crowds. Mark says they throng about him. They're pushing him in on every side from all over the country, most of them looking to be healed. The sick woman came to Jesus because reports had gone out about him of the things he had previously done. Many people would have been saying Jesus was a prophet, which is true. Many of them were saying he had great power to heal, which is true. They knew true things about Jesus, but they did not yet know everything that Jesus had come to reveal about himself. Think about the things that Jesus' disciples have just experienced with him. Jesus conquers a storm like it's no trouble at all. He conquers a raging man filled with demons like it's no trouble at all. We have seen two responses to these events, faith and fear. The disciples started afraid of a storm. The Gerasenes were afraid of a man filled with the legions of Satan. But when Jesus conquers both, then you realize it's not that the powerful frightening thing has gone away. I've actually now just found something all the more powerful. And in that way, all the more frightening. Some people's fear makes them want to run away from Jesus. But others feel a fear that makes them say, I want to trust in this man. This one who conquers storms in the armies of Satan. I want to stay with him. Jairus and the sick woman both seem pretty confident that Jesus is powerful. He is a powerful healer. They both come humbly, desperately, faithfully, expectantly, believing Jesus can do what no one else has been able to do. And Jesus does not reject that faith. It's true faith, but it's incomplete faith. Now, I don't mean that they have more faith that they need to feel in and of themselves, but they don't yet have a complete picture of the object of their faith. Jairus is ready to believe that Jesus is a man who can save a girl on the brink of death. But is he ready to believe that Jesus can save a dead girl? The sick woman believes that Jesus is a vessel of great healing power. But does she understand why he heals? In both cases, Jesus uses these events to inform and instruct their incomplete faith to help them better understand who this man is, who they have faith in. And that's our second point, faith in Jesus, the Savior. 
The sick woman touches Jesus' garment, hoping that even his clothes can make her well. But Jesus wants to make sure that this woman and no one else comes away thinking that Jesus is some sort of source of power that you can access like rubbing a magic amulet to get him to do what you want. Jesus calls forward this woman in order to make this clear and make this clear to us as well. He cares too much about this woman to leave her simply saying, I met a great healer, a supernatural doctor. And if you go to him, you can have your ailments taken care of as well. If that was all that she knew, then Jesus' healing would have even created confusion. It would have created a false hope. Even when the gospel has now been so clearly revealed, many people, many who even call themselves Christians, are preoccupied with this false hope. They love Jesus' power. They say that they trust in it, but they misunderstand its purpose. Christians have spent history seeking out, even paying money to get near to relics of Jesus, to get near to his garments, to things associated with him, or even other people in scripture. They've searched the world, hoping that these places and these items have special power to heal. They've been transfixed by these hopes in this world in a way that Jesus is trying to save this woman from. He calls this woman forward so that she will need to testify to her healing. But then he tells her, this is what your testimony will be. He points her to the ultimate purpose of his ministry. She did not just meet a source of great power who gives out his power arbitrarily. She has met Jesus who has healed her because of her faith. She was not just healed by a garment imbued with power. It is her faith that has made her well. And it is the pow- her faith in the power of Jesus. Now the Greek word for made you well, which Jesus says to her here, is sozo. This Greek word actually means to save. That doesn't make the translation made you well wrong. But when we understand it in Greek, we see the bigger thing that Jesus is saying to her here. He is not just saying to her, your faith has stopped your bleeding. He is saying, your faith has saved you. Remember that lame man who was lowered down through the roof, who Jesus healed. What did he say? He did heal that man. But he said his healing was meant to point to his greater power to forgive. And he's doing the same thing for this woman here. The healing of her bleeding, which has now made her clean, able to go into God's presence and worship him is showing that Jesus can save her from all that separates her from God so that she can live to glorify him. Trusting in Jesus is trusting one who saves you beyond physical benefits in this life only. Now when Jesus says that she was saved by her faith, he's still not just referring to her impulse to believe. The decision that she made to come to Jesus, that's still not what saves her. Some people are always trying to measure their faith, to determine based on their thoughts, even based on their emotions, whether or not they have enough of what it takes to get God to do what they need from him. This becomes an enslavement 
that leaves people frustrated and depressed, spending every day in agony, wondering whether they believe enough or believe well enough. Some people say that if you have true and pure enough faith, it doesn't even matter what its object is. It's been said that if you have true faith in Allah or Brahman or Zeus or the spirits of your people, then God's going to have to honor that pure faith. No, it is faith in Jesus that saves because it is Jesus alone that saves and that salvation is for those who have faith in him. Sinclair Ferguson says, only faith saves us because only faith draws on the power of Jesus Christ as Savior. So when Jesus tells this woman to go in peace, he's not only inviting her to be healed from her disease, he's inviting her to enjoy reconciliation with God. You might have first come to Jesus because you had all kinds of needs. You saw that the choices that you made were making you unhappy. You saw that your family was not what you wanted it to be. You saw suffering and sickness and loss in this world in yourself. You felt hopeless and needy. And those things are good things to bring to God. They are. Those are trials and troubles that God cares about and wants to answer. But as we come to God with those things, Jesus will always respond by showing us that they are just symptoms of a greater need. And it is that need fundamentally he has come to answer. Now that is why we have all the promises in Christ that one day brokenness and sickness and loss will be done. But Jesus ultimately never wants us to come to him only as our doctor, our family counselor, our activist. He wants to invite us into peace with God. He wants us to know that he is the Savior who can take God's wrath so that our hearts and one day our bodies and the whole world will be renewed. So it is a gift to this woman that Jesus has stopped her, has called her out to explain to her what happened and send her away with a true testimony of what he has done. But if this diversion was wonderful for this woman, imagine what it felt like for Jairus. Can you imagine this man who threw himself at Jesus' feet, who implored desperately, and now Jesus has stopped in the middle of the crowd I'm sure Jairus was pushing people left and right. Let's get him through. Let's go as quickly as possible. And then Jesus says, who touched me? We hear a little bit of that incredulity from the disciples. Why are you stopping now to ask who touched you in a crowd full of people? This might have seemed uncaring to Jairus. All the more as he finds out while Jesus is in the middle of this diversion that his daughter has died. But it is in fact, even out of love for Jairus, that Jesus has delayed. Again, he wants Jairus not just to believe in Jesus as a healer, but to get a glimpse that Jesus has come to offer a greater salvation. Think about what Jesus did when he found out his good friend Lazarus was ill and on the point of death. Remember what he did? He waited. He even waited days until he had found out that Lazarus had died. 
because his desire was not simply to perform a miracle for Lazarus and his family, but to more wonderfully reveal to them who he really was and the hope that they could have in him so that they could truly trust in everything that he was and all he had come to do. Jesus says, uh, the messengers that come from Jairus say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? It's clear what they believe about Jesus, that he might have been able to do something even for a very sick living person. But obviously, death is outside of his sphere of power. Obviously, his services are not required now that she has died. The time for healers has passed, but Jesus immediately responds before we even get a chance to know what Jairus thinks. Do not fear, only believe. This is not so different than what Jesus said to his disciples in the first of this group of miracles. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Remember that Jesus was rebuking them for thinking that he was somehow not able or willing to overcome the storm they were afraid of. Jesus has shown now that he is able to overcome the curse of nature. He is able to overcome the devil. He is able to overcome our infirmities, our uncleanness. And now he is telling Jairus, actually, you do not even need to be afraid of death. Just believe in me. If we do not understand all that Jesus is, if we are focused on trusting him only for what we want from him, then we are eventually going to meet with fears that we do not believe, will not believe he is able to overcome. If all of our focus from Jesus when we come to him is that he can improve our finances, our family dynamic, our emotions, then we are going to lose confidence in him when we are truly faced with sin and suffering and death. Having an incomplete or selfish hope in Jesus will ultimately leave us afraid because our Jesus is unable to meet the bigger enemies that we didn't even see coming. But to understand who Jesus is, is to face even the greatest fears of this world and say, I have confidence in him. I know in whom I have believed. When Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, there is already a great commotion of mourners. Now at this time, in this culture, it was customary that a certain amount of mourning was necessary, and so hired mourners were present at just about every funeral. And there would have been many of them for this rich young ruler's daughter. This explains why, when Jesus says that the girl is only sleeping, some of these mourners so quickly turn into mockers. Mark tells us all this because he wants to show us there are many people here in the room with this girl, and all of them believe it is very clear that she has died. Everyone agrees. So much so that these mourners would mock someone who said otherwise. So we have many witnesses. Jesus calls this morning a commotion and sends those mourners away. It is quite clear that Jesus has no love for these inauthentic displays of affection. Jesus, who is here to show true compassion and love, does not care about worldly displays of love that are more about showing 
who we are than actually loving those who need us. Jesus leaves behind only Peter and James and John with the girl's parents. Then he takes her hand, once again touching what would have made him ceremonially unclean. And what happens next is not some great battle or duel between Jesus and a great power. With that same calm, easy power, which Jesus showed over the storm and over the legions of Satan, Jesus says two words. He tells the girl to rise, and she rises. Jesus tells him to give her something to eat. Again, showing his concern is for her, but also confirming what he has just done. Remember, when Jesus himself rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples, he asked for food to prove that this wasn't some supernatural magic or trickery. They weren't looking at a vision or a ghost. They were looking at someone who had been raised, even in the body. And Jesus is proving that here, he really is able to save people from death. But again, even here, Jesus would hate for us to stay and fixate on this power and not see it in the context of what he is revealing about himself. Even this miracle, one of his greatest that he performed, is a step in unveiling who he truly is. Jesus never came to be a demon crusher or a storm calmer or even one who raises the dead. He is showing himself above and beyond all of that to be the one with complete power over nature and the world and hell and infirmity and death. He is the Messiah. These parables, these uh, miracles have been showing what Jesus was teaching right before in those parables. Mark has used transitions to show us that Jesus has gone right from preaching these parables to performing all of these miracles in order. And if you read it all together, you can see that Jesus is demonstrating what he has been teaching. He is taught about the kingdom of God, which will one day cover all the earth. And here he is saying, look no further, that king is here. Once Jesus has completed his ministry, once he has accomplished his resurrection from the dead, he is making sure that we can look at these miracles and never believe something so crass as saying Jesus is a magician or a necromancer. Or not simply saying that Jesus was simply the great miracle worker, but that he is the anointed king of kings sent from God. And similar to Jesus' parables, he has no interest in showing these miracles to people who will not understand who he truly is. On the last day, Jesus will be vindicated before his enemies. But until that day, Jesus has no desire simply to score points, simply to prove his power. I think it surprises many of us that he sent all of those mourners out of the room when he was about to perform the greatest miracle in his ministry. Why would he tell them that the girl is only sleeping? Many of us certainly would have wanted this miracle to be performed right in their faces. This would have been the great gotcha moment where all of that laughing was silenced. 
But Jesus is not here to win arguments. Jesus is not here to demonstrate that he is right and they are wrong. These mourners have no interest in believing in him. Jairus has come to him with faith. They have met him with mocking. Even if they had seen what Jesus had done, they wouldn't have come away believing in who he was. In fact, their testimony of this great magical event would likely have obscured what Jesus was revealing about himself. So for now, he will keep the miracle concealed, inviting only those apostles along with the parents who will one day give us this testimony in the midst of this good news and show us what it is building towards, even Jesus' own death and resurrection. When Jesus said that Jairus' daughter is sleeping, he was not just concealing this miracle. He wasn't just playing it down for the mourners. He was pointing to his incredible power that extends even beyond the grave. His total authority over both the living and the dead to command according to his will and power. Death is not a barrier for Jesus. But this reality would not be clear until Jesus had risen himself, until he had fully satisfied the punishment of death that we deserve and come out of the grave. After that, we can truly understand what it means that Jesus has conquered death, that it is asleep to him, that it is no match for him. And he will one day appear to John in a glorious vision of his power in the book of Revelation and say, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. That is the power of the Messiah. So, Do you believe in Jesus? Do you know what Jesus you have believed in? Do you know what you believe in him for? We know that there are many people who say that Jesus was just a man, just a great moral teacher. But there are also many people who call call themselves Christians who pick and choose what they want from Jesus. And that's what they're going to believe in him for. They might even isolate some of these miracles and they themselves calling them Christians might spread a false report about why we come to Jesus, what we come looking for, what Jesus does. And without understanding who Jesus the Messiah was and that good news he came to accomplish, your Jesus is going to be so much smaller, so much less than who Jesus is. Our own ideas of Jesus, they're going to fail us. They will likely eventually turn us into the next person saying that I was once a Christian. Then I found out Jesus wasn't able to do what he said. A Jesus who can't give us what we want. But each of these miracles, building up to Jesus' own death and resurrection, are meant to help us clearly understand what it means that he is the Messiah. Paul explains in Ephesians what all this is pointing to, what Jesus is actually able to accomplish. 
and why we should see that as the greatest news. Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is worse than having a long illness, isn't it? That is worse even than physical death, separated from God, enslaved to the devil, caught in the sins of this world, ultimately, spiritually dead, unsavable. Try it all. None of it's going to work. Who could help us in such a state as that? Maybe someone who is able to calm storms because he is God, the creator himself. Maybe someone who is able to defeat legions of demons because he has the power to break the bonds of Satan. Maybe someone who can heal any uncleanness that separates us from God. Maybe someone who has the keys to death and Hades and can break the power of death itself. Jesus has shown that he is the one He is the only one who can save us. And so Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what Jesus, the Messiah, can accomplish. And how can we know that this is our Jesus? That we have rested in all that he is and all that he does. Just as Jesus told the woman and Jairus, by faith. Not enough faith. Not good enough faith. Faith in the right object. Faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Do you know who you have believed in? Do you know Jesus? Not some Jesus you have assembled out of your own needs and wants. Is your view of Jesus the problem solver who gives you your best life now? Who would never require you to do anything that would cost you, like stand up against your culture or say something that might put distance between you and those you loved or cost you your security? Is your view of Jesus someone who tells you that you are fine, that what you are doing must be fine because I love you so your actions must all be good? A Jesus who would never say, I loved you enough to heal you of sin. I loved you enough to break the chains of the enslavement of sin. Do you have a Jesus that instead sears your conscience 
in your rebellion against God? Is your Jesus your butler who is always there to call upon when you need him to make sure that you remain happy, that your family has what they need? Or is your Jesus the one who gives you the good works that you need to do to get saved? Is your Jesus the one who says, I love you enough to tell you that if you keep the Ten Commandments, I'll make sure God lets you win? None of those visions of Jesus will save you from your death and your sin and transgression, from the wrath of God. They might as well be the political activist Jesus or the Muslim prophet Jesus. Jesus Christ came and lived and truly performed these miracles so that you would know that he is the Messiah, the anointed king come to save the world. He came to break the bonds of sin and death, to die and to rise again from the grave so that you, if you have faith in him, can be made alive, can be given a new heart, raised from that state of death, like dry bones that are given flesh. You who nothing else could save, who nothing else could heal, can one day not only be forgiven by God, but then invited into his heavenly kingdom where you will live with God forever. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then walk in faith and restful confidence in that true Messiah. Let us remember what we have clung to Christ for. Why we have come to him. Let us not be swayed to the left or the right by this world's expectations and desires and even our own hearts. Let us remember that what he has promised to do is always greater, always better, always more wonderful and lasting than what we would have required of him. Now, Jesus has given us a wonderful gift to remind us what we have believed in, in the Lord's Supper. We are meant to come here regularly as a church to remind us what it means that he is our Savior. He draws us back to the cross, to his body broken, his blood spilled, where our salvation was accomplished, what all those miracles were pointing towards, where death would be defeated where there would be eternal life for all who would trust in him. This is the faith that the church proclaims to one another and that we proclaim out to the world, nothing less than the gospel. And this is why he gave it to us. And this supper is for those who have been united to him. We are nourished by the bread that represents his body because we, the church, are his body. He first gave the supper to his apostles as the foundation of his household so that we might know that our head continues to nourish the body of the church, which is what this supper represents. So if you are not yet one who trusts in Jesus, and if you have not yet joined yourself as a member to a church that proclaims the gospel, we ask that you do not take it. Please wait. Believe in him. Be a part of his family. Be united with his body. Any local church that proclaims the gospel, not just ours. And then join us at this table where we will remember that because we were united with him in his death, we are united with him in his life. Because we were united with him when he took our punishment, we are united with him and nourished by him in his kingdom.
forever and ever. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for Jesus, nothing less than Jesus the Messiah. We praise you that he did not only come to heal physical infirmities, that he did not only come to solve earthly problems. Yes, he did these things. And yes, we do bring those sorrows to him in his grace. But we thank you that he came for so much more. He came as the anointed king who saves from sin and death. And we know that because of this, one day, we will dwell in a kingdom free from all of these troubles under our great King Jesus forever and ever. And Father, as we share in this Lord's Supper, may we remember and proclaim and hold to that good news to Jesus, our Messiah, until he comes again. We pray in his name. Amen.